The Reformation was grounded on five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. And Soli or Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. It swept through Europe in the 16th century. And the mother church of the Reformation was St. Marian. This church is dated back to 1187. I don't usually show slides, but I'm going to show you two this morning. And beside the pulpit hang two, actually four pictures. And the first image you will see come up is the pulpit that Martin Luther preached from in St. Marian in Wittenberg, Germany. And this picture that you see here and online hangs to the right of an elevated pulpit painted by Lucas the Elder or Lucas Cranach the Elder, a friend of Martin Luther. And particularly what I want to draw your attention to is not the four pictures but the bottom picture. So on the next slide you're going to see hermeneutics in action. This is Martin Luther's hermeneutics, how he approached God's word. And it is so relevant to how we are going to approach God's word here this morning. And here's what it is. So in the picture, what you see is Martin Luther with his left hand on the Bible and with his right hand pointing to the crucified Savior. Now, what you may not be able to see clearly are people on the left of this picture looking not to Martin Luther, but to the cross. That's what we want to do every week, week in, week out. Hand on God's word, pointing to Christ, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ that will come again, not to hear my words, but to hear God's word. And Martin Luther understood this. And this painting captures this. But what's interesting in this painting as well, and this is why I love those that are more gifted than I in so many ways, take a look at the children's faces. Some of them are looking totally away. What is that envisioning? The lost. See, in the painting, what was captured, and there's also some faces for the adults, that if you look carefully at their eyes, that they're not on the cross, they're there, they're hearing, but they're not believing. They're hearing, but they're not understanding. They're hearing, but they're not focused on what Luther is preaching. So this morning, we are going to learn of a man who spent his entire life to diminish himself. His entire existence was to rise in one sense to fall at the appropriate time and to point to Christ. And his name is John the Baptist. Now, originally in your handout from last week, you'll notice I had John 1, 6 through 10. And then as I started to prepare to preach the word, I realized verse 10 has to be next week. So I apologize. But you, if those that have read ahead, you're one verse ahead for next week. So... Verses 6 through 9, we will be spending our time in. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his exceptional book called Preaching and Preachers, one of my favorite books, 
that I have in my study upstairs right there. And in the front of that book is a man that signed it for me, and his name is Dr. Stephen Lawson. And Dr. Lawson, I have made tons of notes in this book, but the reason that I treasure this book is the man that wrote it lived a life that was pointing to the cross, which was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the man that signed it has exhibited that in his life, and so they're doubly treasured in my library. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in this book says this, preaching should always be under the spirit, his power, his control. Preachers are never just an advocate, but a witness. Preachers are never just an advocate, but a witness. He goes on to say, an advocate is like an attorney who represents someone in a court of law. They're not interested in the person. They may not even know the person, but the preacher is to be involved all the way along. The preacher gives, if the preacher gives the impression that he is only an advocate presenting the case, he has failed completely. The preacher is a witness, Dr. Jones says. That is the very word used by our Lord himself. Ye, you that are believers, shall be witnesses unto me, And that is what the preacher must always be at all times. I am emboldened to keep on, Dr. Jones finishes, preaching what that is expository, evangelistic, clear, serious, confrontational, but never manipulative. And preaching that is always centered on the, and confident on the gospel alone. In the Old Testament times, God spoke And then for 400 years, he was silent. God spoke to his people primarily through his prophets. His words were recorded by men, and these were through the Spirit's inspiration. We know this as the Old Testament. But after numerous centuries of tabernacling with his people, God's presence and God's word was removed from his people. Generations of parents would tell their children that came after, you remember those days when God spoke? Do you remember those days when God tabernacled? This was a story of of Israel in the Old Testament that's ultimately a tragic story that ends in judgment and in exile because of their continued sins. The presence of God departed from the people and they went into exile in Babylon Babylon and Assyria. And the Old Testament ends with the nation's sin still festering and with the presence of the Lord still absent. And the prophet's message was left incomplete and unfulfilled. And this should not be surprising. Near the beginning of Israel's history, Moses spoke on behalf of God to the people, giving them the law and the covenant and t- calling them to repent to remain faithful. He also spoke on behalf of God to the, to the nations and he warned Pharaoh and Egypt of the coming plagues. But Moses himself spoke of a greater prophet to come. Listen to the words for Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him that you shall listen 
But throughout the Old Testament, this prophet did not emerge. As the Old Testament comes to an end, we are looking for the greater prophet than Moses. The one who would speak God's word to the people in a way that the results lasted with forgiveness of sin and permanent presence. Not temporal, not conditional, but a permanent presence. And then, finally, God speaks. I don't think we understand the gravity of what I just said. 400 years. Average life expectancy. This is parents telling children. Grandparents telling children. Great-grandparents telling children. This is generation after generation coming, passing, dying, and God not tabernacling with his people. And then God speaks. Now, all four Gospels talk of a man called John the Baptist. I have had so much fun learning of this man, dwelling in the Gospels, learning of who John the Baptist is. We've read his stories. You know his stories. Do you love his story? Do we live out his story? That's the question. That's the question. See, John the Baptist was the first New Testament herald. Now, did you see the recent king in England get announced? We, we watched every royal thing as good Canadians should, right? So the king of England is now taking the throne. We were saddened because we loved the queen. We loved the queen. But the king was coming in. The person that announced who was the new king of England was the official royal herald. Fun fact for those that like the monarchy. This man, John the Baptist, is the official royal herald. He has now shown up on the scene and all four gospels are going to tell us of a man two of which are going to just jump right in to the preaching of. But one of them is going to back up and say, whoa, whoa, let me tell you a little bit about not only how he was conceived, but about his birth. And we're going to pair that with Jesus's. And we know that is the book of Luke. Luke starts with the, or Mark starts with the preaching. Matthew begins with a detailed genealogy. Chapter 3, we read of the preaching of the John the Baptist. John 1 goes back to the creation of the world as we've been in for the last two weeks, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him. There's not anything that was created that was created, right? So the first three verses go way back to Genesis. But then in verse 6, it's like where did John come from? What happened? And if you look at just, it's interesting, isn't it, in John, that John the Baptist is inserted in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9. And it just happens out of the blue, seemingly. But it doesn't. For if you know your Gospels, if you know your Bible, all of them in concert are to be read in harmony with one another. And we've learned from Matthew the genealogy, we've learned from Mark of the preaching, and we've learned from Luke of the conception, the foretelling of the birth. And John doesn't have to tell you all that again. No, no, he says, no, 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 the herald is here. 
Now, in the book of John, John, you'll remember from last week, never uses his own name. He says, rather, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But here, John, anytime in the book of John, you, you see the name John, it's John the Baptist. So that's important that you catch that little piece. So John's not talking about himself, not the apostle John. This is John the Baptist in verse 6. John's gospel does not tell the backstory, but Luke thankfully does. Let me read to you from Luke. If you have your Bibles, and by the way, if you're new here or you don't have a Bible here, we're a people of the Bible. It's not about Chris's words. It's about God's word. So out in the front in the foyer, we've got extra Bibles. We just had a whole stack of them arrive this week. And if you don't own a Bible, it would be our greatest pleasure to give you a Bible. Okay? So if you don't have one, there's Bibles coming in the back. Raise your hand. Get into God's word because that's where we want to spend our time tabernacling so that we can love God deeper. And by the way, don't just use it. Keep it. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take it home. It would be an honor and a privilege. Okay. Luke 1, verses 5 through 17. Luke 1, verses 5 through 17. I love the sound of the Bible. Don't you? You just can't get that electronically, can you? You can't switch that. I mean, you have to put a little sound to make it sound that good. Just hearing those pages rough. Oh, it's good. Okay. So Luke 1, verse 5, God's word, the holy inspired word of God says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah. Probably saying it wrong. It's okay. Pretend I said it right. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, hugely important, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, and yet they had no child because Elizabeth was infertile and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he's performing, verse 8, his priestly service before God in the appointed time in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside in the hour of the incense, of the hour of the incense offering. Now, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing right at the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall name his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice over him, for... This is the grounding. He will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. We had a walk for life yesterday that we participated, many in this room. Where does life start? God's word just told us right there. Life is not something that happens after the delivery, but it happens at the conception. So God's word just said that not only was he a real and living person, but the Holy Spirit would indwell in him. Wow. And he will turn, verse 16, 
many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it will be, he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make a people ready or to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Welcome to John the Baptist. That's the foretelling. God has shattered his silence once and for all. For note takers, really simple structure this morning. Three points. The herald, the preacher, the humility. First point, the herald. John the Baptist, the herald. John was the herald and he came to bear witness to him and to prepare the way for him. If you were asked who was the greatest preacher of all time, probably Charles Spurgeon would be on that list, right? The Prince of Preachers from England. And he said in a sermon that he preached on John the Baptist this, in olden times when kings traveled, they were accustomed to sending heralds before them to announce their coming and to prepare the way for them. And I have read that on several occasions, the herald wore such gorgeous apparel adorned with gold and lace that when they went into some of the towns, the people thought that the king, this must be the king himself because of how they were dressed. So they made ready to receive him with royal honors when he said, no, 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 I am not the king. I have merely come to sound the trumpet and say that he is coming. They wonder what? the king must be like if the herald was dressed so resplendently. Something like this has happened with some of those that have heralded Christ before John the Baptist, but not with John the Baptist. Nobody thought when they saw John the Baptist's attire, this has got to be the king. Nobody probably saw when they saw what he was eating, probably thought this is a royal meal. No, 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 no. This was a humble man dressed in humble clothes, and we're going to learn a little bit about that. But somebody that was so powerful because this herald was like a morning star, which is so near the sun that its brightness is the brightest of the stars, and we shall see it shining almost like a little sun. And then when the sun himself rises in all of his brightness, the star disappears. John was burning in a shining light and all who came before him in Christ's judgment are inferior to him. This was the difference between John and the prophets. His, uh, Christ, he was closer to Christ than those that had come before him. He was nearer to Christ and his view of Christ was brighter, fuller, clearer than all who had come before him. But to be a herald meant you had to be properly accredited. Was John the Baptist properly accredited? Great question. I'm glad you asked. So, what does God's word say about John? There was a man sent from God. Full stop. His accreditation is a divine appointment. So there was a man sent from God. His name was John. Now, do you remember we just read about the foretelling of John the Baptist, his birth? 
And you remember he's born. Do you remember the scene, what happens? He's born and his father that had said, you know, what is the name going to be? What's his name going to be? And everyone thought, oh, we're going to name him after the dad, right? This is the way it is. And uh, he grabs a, a tablet and he writes out what? John. And when he writes out John, what happens to the father that had been mute for months leading up to this? He can speak. He can speak. And all of a sudden, his name, he, what are his first words out of his mouth? His name is John. His parents were faithful. There was a period of silence that led up from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There was a period of silence that went from John's birth to John's ministry. So what happens is in the other Gospels, we pick up what actually happens is, is we, we join the journey, if you will, and God is going to break through silence. And at the appointed time, John is going to say the beautiful, precious words, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And he says it not once, but he says, behold, the Lamb. And immediately when he says this, he tells people, stop following me, follow him. Do you catch it? He's entirely about the Messiah. His entire existence as a herald is to proclaim who is to come after, like this sun and the moon. The moon is here. And what does the moon do? It shines beautiful light. But you take away the sun and the moon is darkened. And John gets it. He knows his role as that moon is to shine bright until the moment when the darkness is now enlightened. And so we pick up out of the silence, John heralding, witnessing, look to God's word in Luke chapter 3. Now, Luke 3 verse 1. In the 15th year, and by the way, the names that I'm going to read you are the rogues gallery of the people that you don't want to be associated with at this time. Why do I tell you that? These are the people that are going to put him in prison. These are the people that are going to put Christ on trial. These are the people that are going to execute the Savior. This is not a lovely list of people that I'm going to read to you ahead of here. But what I love about God's word is the precision. Look at this. This is not, oh, there was a time and a place far away. No, 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 no. Look at John 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, and was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Where is John? In the wilderness. He's not in the downtown. He's not at the perfect location. This is not the church on the corner type thing where it's got the best amenities, the best parking, as one preacher once said. It doesn't have the best, you know, street view. It doesn't have the best of anything. He's in the wilderness. 
He's in the wilderness. He looks wild. He eats wild stuff. And he's in the wilderness. Verse 3. And he came into the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, and every ravine will be filled, and every mountain of the hill will be lowered. The crooked will be straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Skip down to verse 15. Now, while the people, people were in the state of expectation, and they were thinking carefully in their heads, hearts about John, whether he himself perhaps might be the Christ. John, do you notice they said, thinking in their hearts? It's not verbally expressing this. Don't you love God's word? If you pay attention to the details here. He knows what they're thinking by divine inspiration and divine awareness. Look to verse 16. John responded to what they were carefully thinking in their hearts. And what does he say? As for me, I baptize you with water, but he is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Last verse for this part. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. John the Baptist knew exactly what his role was. And at the appointed time, in verse 2, second half of verse 2, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. And he responded immediately. And he did what he was supposed to do. There's so much to learn from this godly man. We're nowhere even near like John. His entire existence is to herald Christ and diminish himself. I am nowhere near like this man. So let me ask you some questions, church. What is our responsibility in heralding Christ as a church? What is your responsibility in heralding Christ? Your neighbors? Do we invite them to church? Seriously. They're lost and dying. In our workplaces, are we afraid to have conversations about Christ? We speak about that which we love the most. Do we not? We have three grandchildren. If you said to us, how, tell us about your grandchildren. We can show you lots of pictures. We got lots. Maybe you're like us, right? Maybe on your phone you have them. Do we speak about Christ? Do we herald? Do we witness Christ? Is our existence to talk and point people to Christ? We have family members that are lost. Do we care? Or do we just want to not muddy the waters? Our existence is to herald Christ if we're Christ followers. We're stars, but we're diminishing stars, burning out stars to herald. And here comes John. And he says, it's all about him. 
Are we growing in our witness to Christ? If not, why? One of the things that's a clear indicator in our hearts is do we love to commune with God in his word and in our prayers? So let me exhort you. Let me exhort myself firstly. Are we consuming his word and communing with the word? That's the challenge. It has been said, and I would concur, that the most effective and powerful preacher before Jesus Christ was John the Baptist. The most successful and the most powerful preacher, let me repeat this, ever to have existed. And how do we know that to be true? Because God's word tells us it's true. Christ says there's never been a man like this man. That's pretty high praise. John the Baptist, the preacher, point two. John had a massive following. Now, if we ran a seminary, for those that are in Bible college or or what have you, and you said, okay, we're going to say this is how you should preach, this guy does everything wrong according to how we're trained in seminary in some ways. Why do I say that? He isn't showing up with suit and tie. He's got camel hair and a leather thing around him, right? So... That's a little weird. So if you're a consultant and you're like, hey, this is what you should do. This is not your dress code, number one. What are you going to eat? Locusts and honey. Great. Okay. So don't go dine with me, right? Afterwards, it's like, hey, let's go have lunch after with the pastor and his family. No, you're not going to want to go do this. Okay. So clearly, all right, maybe he's seeker sensitive. Some people have asked. So you remember the scene in the Bible where the Pharisees now show up and some of the leaders are now showing up and what are you going to say to them? You brood of vipers. So why does he do what he does? Because it's not about him. It's all about Christ. See, he realizes... Oh, and by the way, if you think he's in a choice location, (laughs) let me give you a little history lesson on where he actually preached and I've come to learn through my studies. It's around 21 to 36 miles, depending on where that is. Now, context, it's it's about a 12-hour walk to go see this guy from the city center. And you have to go down about 3,000 feet in the wilderness, in the hot. So... This is not like, oh, have you ever thought our building maybe doesn't have great location, right? Maybe we don't have like the perfect signage and it's a little hard to find us. Well, this guy was a lot harder to find. But people found him. And the reason they found him is God speaks. And where God speaks, people show up. And out of the silence, God breaks through and he does not preach something that tickles their ears. His opening words is repent. And then the leaders come in. Oh, by the way, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? If it's not bad enough, he's just called them vipers. Oh, and by the way, in case you wonder what a viper is, a viper is a snake, right? What you may not know is the Palestinian viper is the most deadly of all snakes in the area. So he didn't just pick any of them. 
which they would have thought back in their mind, oh, vipers, what about, remember in Isaiah, well, don't play around there with the vipers because it's going to kill you. So they knew this was not a nice image in case you're wondering, well, maybe vipers was a term of endearment. Then. No, it's not. It's not then. It's not now. And so he looks them and levels straight out of the gates. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the coming wrath? John spoke with conviction as a dying man to dying mankind. His message was humanity under this point. This is 2A. John's message was humanity was in a sinful estate and in need of repentance. Matthew 3, 1. God's word says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John knew exactly what was happening, when it was happening, and he tells them what's happening. John's ministry, second point under here, happened in a remote location. It has nothing to do where we are located. It has everything to do with what we say where we are located. God can bless ministries in the most remote locations if we adhere to God's word. John's appearance was wild. He made no fashion statement. John's diet was unique. One, somebody once said, and I loved it, they said, okay, can you imagine, like, how would you vary it up, locusts and honey? Would you have, like, roasted for dinner and then maybe wash it down with some honey? I don't know. I don't know. I'd be guessing. All I know is it's a pretty boring diet. But John the Baptist was a model of austerity. And that word means extreme plainness and simplicity. Now, some have speculated, did, did he spend time growing up in this particular? I'd be speculating. I don't want to speculate with God's word. Probably, maybe. He's in the wilderness. I get it. But here's, what, here's the point. It's not about that stuff. He was not looking to draw attention to himself. Heralds typically have the coat of arms... If you went back and looked at what happened in the king of England, and then you see the proclamation, they actually match what the new incumbent king looks like in some regard. And they have the shields, and they have the this, and they have the... He was all about Christ. So he was not looking to draw himself any attention. John was not looking to make people happy with his words, but rather was direct and spoke the truth. In love, because of love. John 1 8, John the Baptist seems to soften the message. Remember, he's called them vipers? Seems to soften it a little bit here. In 1 A, B, do not start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our fathers, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children from Abraham. So you're thinking, Oh, good, now he's calming down, right? Okay, that's good. Then we get to verse 9. What does he do? But. Indeed, the axe is already being laid at the root of the trees so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Oh boy, he's back. Okay, so this is a message of repent, repent, repent for the kingdom is at hand. That's exactly what our society today needs to hear. That's exactly what you need to hear. It's exactly what I need to hear. 
John the Baptist was successful as a preacher then, and by the way, would be now, because he had divine authority, he was spirit-empowered, he was sent from God, and he knew exactly what to say. It was all about Christ. The centrality of Christ and the diminishment of himself. John cannot help but cry out of the one that's coming after him, for he knew that he stood at the crossroads of history. Think of the privileged position he was in. I mean, seriously, for a second. There's been many preachers that have come before. He knew that he was standing at the precipice of the Messiah coming into the world. Wow. And so, all the country of Judea, now, all, I think, is probably a hyperbole, meaning it's probably an exaggeration, but I think it's indicative of the fact that all the people were coming out to hear him. And they were being baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Do you catch that? What is he preaching? Repent, repent, repent. And they are being baptized and confessing their sins. The Lord was coming. John the Baptist lived with an urgency to tell of a, to a lost and dying world. Now, many times when I preach, I try to think of who's in the audience and who's watching online and how do I put the application. Now, I'm actually going to stop the sermon and I'm going to speak now to myself and to the elders of our church. So what do we want to take away from this? I, as your primary preaching pastor, and your elders must ensure that the proclamation of the word of God is all about him and not about us. Number one, there's no better preacher pre-Jesus than John the Baptist. People were constantly coming out to hear John the Baptist. He was remarkable. People flocked out. Matthew eleven eleven continues and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there was not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. What's my point? It has nothing to do with us. So regardless how successful this church may or may not be according to the world standards, how we are going to be judged as elders is how we care for the flock. We are shepherds thereof. And therefore, our gauge must be adherence to the word and caring for the souls entrusted to us. Despite this praise, John knew his role was to elevate Christ, to move out of the way to ensure that the people that came followed Jesus. And so the question I ask myself and us as elders, do I... And do we as leaders model this genuine humility of diminishing ourselves and maximizing Jesus Christ? Two words, publicly and privately. See, it's great if we stand up here and we look the part and we talk this, but unless in my home I'm doing that, unless we are doing that publicly and privately, then we're failing. And we need to grow in that. We're not going to do it perfectly, but that's what we need to be called to be challenged and exhorted to. So this man lived with genuine humility. 
He knew he was a moon, which simply reflected the S-O-N, sun. John the Baptist, third point, humility, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle John, the book's author, was not the light, but was sent to bear witness about the light. And so the apostle took every opportunity to emphasize that John himself meant that he was to point the people to Christ. John 1, 19 to 34, 3, 22 to 36, 5, 33 to 36. John 1, 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John was calling for repentance. Do you know what that means? So repentance is a term that's used a lot. But what does it really mean biblically? Aren't we simply saved by faith? We are, right? Martin Luther, saved by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. That was the key tenets of some of the things that came out of the Reformation. So how do we reconcile then Mark 1.15 when God's word instructs, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. R.C. Sproul in his little book, what is, the, what is Repentance, helpfully clarifies this question. We may also be tempted to think, he says, of repentance as an optional or an add-on to faith. But he says, no. Justification, being made right, right before a holy and just God, after all, is by faith alone. But justification does not exclude repentance. Repentance is not tangential concept in the Bible. Rather, it is a central conversion. And then he gives this really helpful illustration. And here's how I want you to grab onto this. He says, our guide in exploring these themes is Psalm 51, written by David just after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Do you remember the scene? Exactly. So Nathan declared that David had grievously sinned against God in taking Bathsheba to be his wife and murdered her husband, Uriah. It's important to see the anguish and the heartfelt remorse expressed by David. But we must also understand the repentance of the heart is the work of God, the Spirit, lest we take credit for it. David is repentant because of the influence of the Holy Spirit upon him. Not only that as the writer as the writes this prayer, but as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you catch that? Repent and believe. See, repentance does not earn our faith, but it's evidence that the Spirit is stirring in us and we are convicted of our standing as sinners before a holy and just God. And so what you have here is a duality that says on one level we need to do something because we can't help but do that when we are convicted of our sins before who is coming. The sun is standing there, is shining brightly upon it and it's revealing the darkness in us. And so we want to put off and put on. We want to turn from and turn to. And so there's a repentance and then there's a belief by faith, that then is evidenced by walk and speech. And so justification must be understood as crucial in here. And harmonize, John 1, 9, it's understand that what he is saying and what he is not saying. It continues in verse 9. 
This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. Now, let me be really clear what this is not saying. This, this, is, not, this is not proclaiming universal salvation. This does not mean he came in to save. Everybody is now saved because Jesus has now come. That's universalistic. That's, that's, that's heresy. That's not true. But what this means is Jesus, the word, the life, is the one who, he is now the agency, gives life to all who would repent and believe. Do you see that? See, it's so important. See how you can mishandle God's word? If you just took verse 9 and said, oh, we're all saved. No, wrong. That's not true. But this is not the slightest case here for universal salvation. One commentator adds, just listen to this. Just as a blind cave fish deep in the subterranean streams are ultimately sustained by the light of the sun, so even human beings who have the light, beings, whatever the light they have, is theirs from him. Do you catch that? In other words, if they're so far down that they can't see the light, but there's still light that's influencing the water, which is actually influencing the ability to exist... He's saying that rain falls on the just and the unjust. When the sun rises, when we see the stars, right? That's called general revelation. There's an accountability. But special revelation is only found through God's word. So there's a harmony happening in here. And that's why scripture must be interpreted with scripture. The light is manifested, made known, so that all are without excuse before God. Romans 1, 18 through 20. All are without excuse for unbelief towards God. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. The gospels warn of the coming judgment. And here's the application. So in humility. I want to speak now to the people in this room and online that aren't believers. My job is not to tickle your ears. It's to tell you that the house is on fire and you're dying. And my job is to herald, to tell you how to get out of a burning building. And that is only found through Christ alone by repenting of your sins and turning to him in faith. Otherwise, you will die, you will face him, and you will be judged. Now, maybe you don't want to hear that. Frankly, you need to, as did I. If the house is burning, I wouldn't be loving to you to say anything else but the truth. And John the Baptist stood and said, repent. Remember, they come out. Who warned you, you brood of vipers? And the ax is at the root and it's going to knock it all down. Your house is burning. Albeit much less power, much less influence that I have, I too must be a voice calling in the wilderness. Let's call it the canyon wilderness. Proclaiming, heralding of Christ. He's the great I am, the word, the light, the life. I exhort you now to repent of your sins. Turn to him in faith, in repentance. And then come and talk to me. There would be no greater privilege I would ever have than to walk alongside you afterwards. I know our elders would be so thankful. If I'm out there and this is you, find me. Talk to me. If we want to spend a half hour, an hour, we have two cars. We'll make it work. 
Okay? If you want to come in this week, we'll find a time. This matters. Don't play around with this thinking you have time. To the believers here at the church and online, God hates pride in human beings. Pride is the refusal of an acknowledgement that we are fully and completely dependent on him. Jesus will model, models true greatness later in the book of John. Remember? Remember the scene in John 13? They're coming into the upper room. What does Jesus do? He gets low. Our Savior models true greatness by his true humility. He teaches them that the way up is down. Remember, they're fighting. Who's going to be at your right? Who's going to be at your left? What does Jesus do? Quietly gets down and washes their feet. You think that was by accident? C.J. Mahaney adds in his short and powerful book entitled Humility, True Greatness, subtitle. Where there is worry, where there is anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing, CJ says, anxiety, the root of the issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. What is the solution? Humble yourselves, God says. But how? Acknowledge your need for me. Cast your cares upon me, and I will transform you. Why was John the Baptist not fearful? Why did he... What could possibly, I mean, you realize somebody might have said to him, hey, John, if you keep doing this, they're going to take your head off. Seriously. They're going to throw you in prison. He didn't care. Friends, we're going to face days ahead where we're going to have to make stands, and we will. In Canada, I had to sign behind the scenes a thing saying if we, uh, if we, get arrested as pastors, we had to agree as an elder board that we're prepared to go to jail for up to two years. Everybody voted. Yes, we're in. It's coming. Last week, there were churches around the world that were taking stock. What side of this fence are you on? Are you in with society and what it stands for? Are, are you with God? And they're taking stock. This church will face days ahead. I will face days ahead where we have to stand firm against what's coming, and we will, okay? Because we will not back down. John knew that who was coming after him is who he should be fearful of. We are not to fear man. We are to fear God. What can man do to me? What can God do to me? Think of that statement. He knew exactly where he was to be afraid of and what he was not to be afraid of. So whether they were standing in front of him and whether they could clap him an iron, whether they could take his head off, it meant nothing to him. He was emboldened. Remember what happened when he was in prison? Is it him? Is it him? Is he the Messiah? That's what was on his mind. Not his circumstances, not am I, do I have locusts coming three times a day now? No. It's all about Christ. In closing, let me finish with what John got that maybe I don't understand well enough. John understood who the I am is, but he also understood who the I am not is. So if you take notes, write that. 
I am not is the key point of this sermon. Why? He understood his humility. He understood his role was to speak up and then get out of the way and point to him. I think that's fascinating. I really do. You know, it's not about church success. It's not about the following that's coming after him. As soon as the followers said, who is it? They said, behold the lamb. And they immediately left and followed him. I don't think he was at all saying, oh, there they go. I think he was going, good, go. It's all about him. We don't have him here yet. He will come again. But our job in the meanwhile is to herald that and to draw people to Christ. Andrew Peterson in his book or in his song called Behold the Lamb of God writes these words. If you don't know the song, please listen to it. I think you'll be, it will bless you. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes away to take our sin. Wanderers in the wilderness, oh, hear a voice is crying. Prepare the way, make straight the path. Your king has come to die. Behold the Lamb of God. Takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the life and the light of men. May his eloquent words not only be appreciated, but faithfully be applied in our lives. And may we decrease and may he increase, I pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word teaches us in in Exodus when they asked, "Who, who are you? You said, I am that I am. You have eternally existed. It's all about you, Father. It's all about your Son. And it's all about your Spirit. Help us as a church to be marked as a people that are the I am nots. Pointing to the I am with the days and the breath that you give us, we pray.